It's going to be so much editing in this one. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Andrea, and welcome to the City of Marion's Literary Anything podcast, a podcast where we. I can't, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> Paula sitting right in front of me. This is her tagline. I'm messing up right in front of her. <laughs> Literally anything and anything literary. Is that right? No. I've been doing this for months. Um, all right, over to Paula for that intro. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marian Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. That was a huge improvement. <laughs> well done. But now I've got to do it again. Now she can use that. She can use that. She's an excellent editor. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andrea. I'm Paula. This month's podcast title is Yellow Face by Rebecca F. Kwang. We were going to be having a chat to this book with author and librarian Sarah Schmidt. Unfortunately, Sarah couldn't make it today. So we have the return, the triumphant mm-hmm. return from the lady who's already saved the intro of the podcast, Paula. <laughs> hey, everyone. Hello, Paula, and welcome back. Super jazzed to be back and to be talking about this book because there, there is a lot to talk about. It's so good. It's <laughs> so good. So maybe without any further ado, we might introduce the book and just get cracking right into it. Sure. Do you want me to read the back? Yeah, go for it. This is one hell of a story. It's just not hers to tell. Athena Liu is a literary darling and June Hayward is literally nobody. White lies. When Athena dies in a freak accident, June steals her unpublished manuscript and publishes it as her own under the ambiguous name Juniper Song. Dark humor. But as evidence threatens June's stolen success, she discovers exactly how far she will go to keep what she thinks she deserves. Deadly consequences. What happens next is entirely everyone else's fault. So Yellow Face was written by Rebecca F. Kwang, who is astonishingly accomplished. I don't even think she's in her 30s Mm. yet. She is the author of The Poppy War, which is a sort of science fiction trilogy looking based loosely on the opium wars in China. She also wrote Babel or The Necessity of Violence last year, a sort of another sci-fi one or fantasy one in the kind of dark academia mode and this yellow face is her first novel outside of those genres so her first kind of engagement with literary fiction Mm. it's been everywhere i've seen pictures of this book on tote bags it's all over social media Mm. it's i think i saw snaps of it at train stations ads for train stations and stuff around the world so wow this has been a big book we've got it on our trending title selection here at the libraries and it's been incredibly popular as well so it's one that everyone who's read it, has an opinion on. Mm. So, Miss Paula, <laughs> as a person who's read it and who has opinions <laughs> on things, what did you think of Yellow Face? I gave it five stars. I thought it was absolutely cool. fantastic. I, as we've talked about in the past, sometimes struggle with book slumps. I was in another book slump. This book pulled me out of it. It was extremely pacey. I thought the pacing was absolutely spot on, especially as it was like reaching its crescendo. The writing was really easy and accessible. The characters, yeah, there are so many themes to talk about. It's the perfect book, I feel like, for a book club discussion because, yeah, it would generate lots of opinions and and there's so many things around it to discuss. Yeah, I think if if you're just a person who's interested in books, 
I think you'll really enjoy this. This, but if you're a person who like follows literary news online or follows book talk, if you're familiar with some of the kind of scandals in publishing over the last couple of years, particularly to do with race and ethnicity, there are so many like little Easter eggs buried in this book. This book, like almost every single thing that happens in this book has a kind of real world corollary. Mm. Like no matter how absurd it kind of seems, there is a kind of real life example that you can kind of point to. So I think the more you're engaged with online reading communities, the more you'll get out of this book. And I think this is a real writer's book. It's very meta. There's a part, I don't think we'll talk about it as we get into it, but there's a part where I was like, she's writing and the spot where she's at is probably where the writer is at as well. It's it's difficult to explain and we'll get, we'll get into it, I think, as it goes along. But yeah, a real writer's book and a real meta analysis of the writing world yeah for sure so just to sort of give you a a basic kind of outline of the world it kind of begins we are introduced to the character june hayward june is an aspiring writer who's literally gone nowhere she's had one kind of book published It, it sort of didn't go anywhere she's been passed from kind of editor to editor at this kind of imprint that doesn't really care about her anymore and she is mates from uni with a woman called Athena Lu, who is a just kind of literary superstar. Her books have been optioned by Netflix. She's a best-selling kind of author. She has a swanky apartment in Washington, D.C. She is beautiful. She's talented. She's sort of everything that June Hayward feels like she's not. And June, they have a real kind of frenemy-style mm. friendship. They... It's really unclear why they're actually mates. Neither of them seem to like each other. So even when they go out for a drink, June is kind of complaining about her kind of woes and Athena kind of never listens to her. (laughs) Never, like from sentence to sentence, isn't listening to her and making her repeat her kind of just bleak kind of news. Like, oh, my editor won't reply to my emails. And she's like, you know, just get your editor to give you some feedback on how you're going. She's like, lady, like he doesn't reply to my emails. I I literally just told you this. So one night they actually do have a genuine moment. They get really drunk. They go back to Athena's very swanky place and in a moment of total absurdity they make pancakes and Athena chokes to death on a pancake. This is not a spoiler. This happens in a very deadpan way in the first chapter. And in the kind of interim, either after the emergency services have gotten there or at some point, June decides to go back and steal a manuscript. It's the first draft of the kind of new novel that Athena has been working on. It's written on a typewriter, which to June's mind is another one of Athena's very pretentious affectations, (laughs) but it also means there's no digital copy of it. So Mm. nobody knows that this manuscript exists and she nicks it and she goes back and somewhere in the fog of her grief or pragmatism, she starts to tinker with this manuscript and she eventually works it up to a place where it's finished, submits it to a publisher, starts a bidding war and gets it published where she becomes a kind of that summer's new literary darling. The novel, though, is a novel about the experiences of indentured Chinese labour in World War One, kind of being used by, I think, America and Canada and the British. I'm not quite 100% sure there. Mm. Which, given that June Hayward is not a Chinese <laughs> woman or just has no sort of Chinese background, leads her into a bit of a minefield, which I think discuss now doesn't it just I mean isn't it wasn't it interesting how her publisher works with her to change her name from June Hayward to as the 
back, the blurb on the back said, the ambiguous Juniper Song. And she's not lying because her name is actually Juniper Song Hayward. Her mother was a bit of a hippie and she named her children, her June's sister is Rory, but her real full name is Aurora something I can't remember the movie yeah. and June is Juniper Song so yeah she adopts this personality quote-unquote of Juniper Song and many misrepresent no, misunderstandings of who she is as a writer for people who weren't familiar with June Hayward which is most people because as Andrea said her career hadn't gone anywhere yeah there are lots of assumptions made about who Juniper Song who's written this book about the Chinese laborers is yeah too much hilarity at some times yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's really I mean it's really awful she sits down to so first off I guess like the engagement with her cultural background comes through the marketing team so this isn't kind of a, a like an ethical problem or a philosophical problem with like who gets to write what it's a problem with marketing mm. they want to make sure they're prepared for any kind of criticisms that could be launched at them so they construct this new ethnically ambiguous kind of identity for her and meanwhile there's like a young kind of intern who works Mm. at the publishers who's in the background going you know I think maybe we should get a sensitivity reader I do think that we should hold off on the publication and just really think about what we're doing here and sort of all of the white people who work at the publishing house are like we should probably sack this lady (laughs) (laughs) and eventually they do well and it wasn't it June though who was like I can't remember she didn't exactly say sack this lady but they oh she writes uh she they, writes a bad good that's read right you. She, they they say to her no to the sensitivity reading yes. and then she goes off and writes a sort of scathing goodreads review about the book and june reads it and i can't remember how exactly she f- realizes who it is or maybe it was even under her name i can't it remember it could have been under her name yeah but if she it was, it was obvious who wrote it and so she june flags it with her publisher this person's name is candace mm. and i don't think she says sacker but that's what eventuates and she's kind of like yeah to hell with that bitch yeah she's incredibly <laughs> still like she's drunk on power but there's also like the reading between the lines though So the initial novel that was written is criticised by June as being just far too stridently anti-imperialist and anti-colonial and anti-racist to the point where she's like, these these white people are just caricatures. So she, one of the things that she's incredibly proud of Mm. is her in her rewriting of the novel, she's rewritten the white characters. So we only get very brief glimpses, but she's incredibly proud of these contributions, which usually involve switching the focus of the narrative from the experiences of the indentured labourers to the white people surrounding them. So I think British British soldiers, the experience of like a young British woman who at some like Christmas Eve That's thing, right. she kind of wanders in to give out some food or something like that to the labourers. And, you know, the way it's written, they all kind of fall down in awe at her kind of glowing beauty, white beauty yeah. and stuff. And she, so this kind of narrator, June, is on the one hand, she knows there's a possibility that people will come for her because she does not have a Chinese ethnic background. So she, quote, like, prepares herself. She kind of learns as if you learn rules about what she should and shouldn't say online. But there's no deeper engagement with it because the whole content of this novel and the way she deals with racism and the way she presents kind of white people in relation to the kind of Chinese labours seems so, like, utterly... What's the word? Disingenuous or...? Disingenuous. It was the same word you used for the help. 
you know, just incredibly sympathetic to these kind of white uh, people, these mm-hmm. kind of like white saviour type characters and mm-hmm. their incredible acts of goodness towards these kind of suffering labourers. And she doesn't even have like the smarts to be <laughs> to like <laughs> tone it down. And l- the fact that she has made these adjustments to Athena's original work allows her to sort of, in her mind, it makes it her work as well. Like she feels like she's justified in taking some of the accolades Absolutely. for Athena's work, which and and not realizing exactly what Andreas is talking about, what she's and to the point where at some at one point one of the critiques said this book seems really schizophrenic. It's like you know at one point it's coming from this angle and another point it's coming from this angle. Well, of course, because it's been written by two completely mm. different people. Yeah, with incredibly different politics as well, yeah. mm. which kind of comes through in the book, and it's also sort of notable the book starts a bidding war but she chooses to go with a white editor and they kind of make a comment as she's sending through these kind of rewritten paragraphs that kind of reframe the white characters in a more sympathetic light that the editor is like yeah this is great and the <laughs> one person of color who works at the the house the aforementioned candace is like yeah so maybe we should get like a few other people to read this this might not be amazing um, and i thought it was interesting that the background to the writing of this book was when Kwang was being published by HarperCollins with Babel. So this was around the time of the 2020 strike at HarperCollins. So mm. amongst one of the demands of the striking workers there was also about a greater commitment to diversity in publishing. And so Kwang, alongside many other HarperCollins authors, joined the picket and joined the strike and you know showed their solidarity with the striking workers. So I thought that was kind of interesting that her own publishing house, her own kind of lived experience is about the impact that a lack of diversity can have on who gets to write what, how they get to write it, mm. and and kind of who reads it as well. There are certain, certainly a lot of callbacks, as Andrea said before, to other books that have come in the past, and they even mention certain ones at some point that just like automatically pop into your head. And of course, one of those is American Dirt, which yeah. we covered here on the podcast yes. as well. And yeah, it's a, a very similar track to American Dirt with... It, in, and in that situation, oh, now remind me, she, the author of American Dirt was Janine Cummins. Janine Cummins, I think. yeah. And she kind of, in this, in this very similar way, purported herself to be not white. But yes. I think, I think from memory, she, she claimed that she, in her own kind of living family heritage, had family members who were illegal migrants who'd crossed the American border and this was partly inspired by their story. But then I think they found out that the family member was so distant yeah. as to be like, I don't know what Charles Darwin would say about it, but like <laughs> a general lay person might say, I don't reckon that person's part of your family. Yeah, and all the characters in her novel were very like caricatures and that was yeah. what the people of colour were complaining about, that these are all caricatures of you know people in their community and rightly so, were annoyed. (laughs) And this is another theme of the book, the idea of mining other people's lived experiences as fodder for writers' work. Yeah, there is a really interesting kind of theme running through it. So I think one of the things that makes the book interesting is that no character in it is entirely bad and no character in it is entirely good. Like everyone in it is really complex and I think it also shows how the structures of publishing encourage particular behaviours if you want to get ahead and I think it kind of shows you how lonely 
being a writer is, how mm. isolating being a writer is and how desperate you kind of might become. So I think it sort of shows. So June is awful. She is, I think, in the parlance of our times, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> there are also things about her that are sympathetic. So she has a genuine kind of love of reading and writing. It kind of comes from a place for her of like dealing with childhood loneliness, mm. childhood grief, the loss um, of her father. The loss of her father. Mm. And it's true that she doesn't have a great experience when she first starts out publishing in a way that has nothing to do with the quality of her writing. Her first novel ends up being bought by a small publishing house that then goes bust right before it comes out mm. and she gets passed on to somebody else and all of the editors and agents around her keep kind of changing. And there is a thing that the book actually talks really well about, about how bestsellers are chosen. Mm. The publishers decide or the marketing teams at the publishers decide it's this one. These five, these are the big five. And I think anyone who's interested in books can look around and you can kind of see that. This isn't to say that other books don't kind of filter through or that everything is like this structure that no one can burst through. Mm. But you can tell when you start seeing what advanced reading copies go out, which books end up in the ads or which mm. books are getting kind of reviewed in the newspaper in advance of their publication. You know, you can kind of see that the, the publishing houses decide – these are the ones we're going to push mm -hmm. them. They're the ones we think and we're going to push the author as well. It really helps when you have an author who is confident and articulate and photogenic and willing to kind of go out there and spruik their kind of wares. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this book they talk about, you know, Athena is in this really difficult position in a way. So she is a Chinese-American woman almost kind of corralled by the publishing house into writing in particular genres and in particular ways about her experience. So there's a whole lot of creative freedom that's kind of denied to her mm. on the other hand she is also she's beautiful she's been educated at elite institutions she is also very savvy with how she manipulates her image and stuff as well she in the is also like Paula was kind of mentioning before she's kind of a, th a thief in her own mm. way which she sort of reminded me a little bit of that debate around the bad art friend I don't know did you remember reading that one no Oh, so this was the one where there were two writers who were in the same writing class and one of them was donating a kidney to somebody else and she kept everyone abreast of what was going on and she released a letter that she had kind of written to the recipient about, you know, how she had had childhood trauma and that laid the basis for her empathy and how she was, you know, hoped the person had a really good life. Meanwhile, someone in her class wrote a short story mm. about a young Chinese-American woman who receives a kidney from this narcissistic white woman who won't leave her alone. And so as soon as the story came out, everyone was like, hey, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> so then the woman who wrote the letter, like, sued the woman who'd written the short story. and then Is this a real life? This is a okay. totally real life yeah. thing. And then someone from the New York Times kind of picked it up and ran with the story. And it had that kind of thing about how authors can also be looking around the world in a way that objectifies the world and kind of flattens people and people become opportunities or they become stories or they become not quite fully human mm. to the author in a way as well. And that's what Athena does to June. What comes out is that June has this experience where she, I think she's drinking one night and she's out with a guy and sort of one thing leads to another and in the morning she's left 
feeling like she did not fully give consent to what happened. And then she goes and she, you know, seeks counseling for that and seeks medical attention, I think, and confides to Athena about her experience. And then lo and behold, next thing, I think it's in a literary journal or she has a short, Athena has a short story published that has a, a lot of similarities to what June told her. So in June's mind, she's like, she stole that from me. I stole from her, but she stole that from me. And it's just interesting, this idea of, as we talked about or alluded to at the beginning, authors using their experiences and the people in their lives as fodder for their work. And it's funny because we had an event last week called Literacello where Andrea had selected items to read in combination with the cello music. And one of the pieces she re- or one of the books she read from was The Good Wife of Bath, which was based on Henry Ch- somebody who Henry Chaucer wrote about who became The Good Wife of Bath. And do you want to explain how that relates to what we're talking about right now? Yeah, so in The Good Wife of Bath, it's told from the perspective of a woman called Eleanor, and they imagine that she has this lifelong friendship with Chaucer, and their incredible confidence, they're also a bit rude, so they, you know, they talk about their life, their aspirations, marriages, sex, all sorts of stuff, until one day Chaucer betrays her trust by using her as the basis of The Wife of Bath for his tale, which for people who haven't read it, it's a very ambiguous kind of representation of a woman. For some people, she's a kind of proto-feminist. For others, she's this really manipulative, scheming, scheming, sex-mad, kind of harpy. And so when there's a really excellent scene in the book where she sits down to read this poem that her friend has been telling her about, and she realises that her friend has kind of betrayed her and their lifelong friendship that the betrayal of her is so crude she says like we can't really be friends there could never really have been anything between us because if there was he wouldn't have been able to depict me in this kind of a way Mm -hmm. and that relates to this book (laughs) (laughs) well because of what's happened with June and and Athena and it just made me think as a person who has done some writing in the past. I think authors do this all the time. Mm. And, you know, usually I think what you come up with are like amalgams or, you know, slightly skewed versions of people, Mm. including yourself. I think authors use themselves as fodder. You can't help but put yourself in some of your characters in various ways. You know, I've not just used people that I know, but even like TV characters. I've thought, oh, that TV character would be perfect. Imagine in them, in th- them in this scenario. And I think unless you're writing nonfiction, it's not going to be exactly the person. You're going to mold and shape the, your characters to fit the narrative that you're trying to tell. And I don't think that we can say that authors should never use their experiences in their work you wouldn't be able to produce work I don't think mm. otherwise but I mean that's a deliberate like you know the the ethics of how much you can take from your everyday life and what you owe to the people in your life yeah because eventually June does make contact with Athena's ex-boyfriend and and she complains to him about how Athena stole the story from her and he was like it was terrible she did that to me all the time yeah yeah and there's another scene like they go to I think it's the a war memorial or something like that or a museum and Athena just sort of wanders off and she's paying great attention to these exhibits and June thinks oh she must be like really moved by it and she sits down with this kind of older man who was a veteran of this war and she's like oh she's such an empathetic person and she gets a little bit closer to overhear their conversation and Athena's just kind of mining this man like Mm. just getting as much of him as much from him as she can 
And then when she rewrites, she writes a story based on this encounter. It's kind of like almost a word for word of this man's narrative, though unacknowledged, you know, and there's no reference to his contribution to mm. it. So these are all the things June kind of tells herself to say, like, all writers are thieves. Mm. What I did wasn't wrong. I took the raw material. I reworked it into something else. And so I deserve what I have. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, you could cast another light on that and say, well, she's highlighting this man's story. And without her, you know, going to him and, and getting that from him, you know, nobody would never would ever know about his experience. So it's, it's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Depending on how so. you cast the light, yeah. she Athena could come across as being like a thief or mm. as trying to draw attention to the experiences of, of minorities who may not otherwise have a voice. Yeah, I think it does get really tricky. It and does. I think the book is good at kind of exploring that because I think the book actually kind of argues that – so one thing is – so June goes out on the road. She starts doing a lot of literary festivals and a lot of presentations and she does get kind of challenged in them about ideas around cultural appropriation or what right does she have – as an author, to tell this story. And she handles those questions in every case very badly (laughs) (laughs) because she's, like, utterly incapable of being self-reflexive. She's just, you know, she's just defensive. And she's also, like, incredibly full of herself by this time. Mm -hmm. Like, she sort of thinks, I've accomplished this incredible thing with my reworking of this, you know, poor... Like, the her in her memory of what the original draft was like, it goes from being... One of before she decides she's going to nick it, it's one of the best things she's ever read in her <laughs> life. It's a clear. I mean, this is the the great novel that everyone aspires to. To by the time it's published under her name, the first draft has become this like just just this awful you know grab bag of like half finished paragraphs and stuff <laughs> that her genius has like reanimated like a zombie or something like that. <laughs> but it does. I think the novel does weighed in on the idea that in principle anyone should be able to tell anyone else's story the way you judge it should be how well you tell it like how serious you are how well you engage with the limitations of your own knowledge Mm. how good you are at actually acknowledging the full personhood of people who are unlike you and that those things aren't impossible and can be done. Mm. But the difficulty is the structures of publishing, which reflect the structures of a world that is unequal and Mm. racist, make that sometimes feel like a very idealistic or purely philosophical proposition. So while that might be true and it might be possible, in the real world, that seems incredibly unlikely to be able to happen. Mm. So the critiques around cultural appropriation aren't efforts to be you know, to censor, censorious or something like that, but they reflect decades of frustration and anger and marginalisation of writers from kind of non-white backgrounds or even, you know, increasingly like non-middle class backgrounds as well. So I think the kind of novel, for all that it has this really funny, breezy tone, mm. it's not reducible to one simple point either it's not just like cultural appropriation bad Mm. i think it's more kind of nuanced Mm. and sort of says there are these principles which seem fine but in the real world it's very very difficult and the anger and backlash towards that reflects a real world hurt i think and that just telling people well don't be so right wing or something like that doesn't really engage with where that kind of hurt and frustration is coming from. Yeah, it was interesting when they talked about the industry and about how when you get into a space where you're trying to elevate other people's voices, but then the publisher would be like, oh, well, we already have a Muslim, you know, we already have that 
kind of author. So we need we need this kind of author. We we've already heard from one person with this background. So now it and it, it became very it can become very tokenistic. Yeah, and, that's right. And it's it seems really frustrating. And yeah, it it is an issue that it seems like all the gatekeepers are white people, and so. You can see how it does become very tokenistic. You're trying to do the right thing. Like you can see these people trying to do the right thing, but they're just like getting it wrong and saying cringy things like, yeah, we've already got a Muslim author. We've got one of those. <laughs> I'm not sure some of the publishers are trying to do the right thing. Okay, I'm maybe. Not sure. so, like, I think the book is kind of ambiguous in that. And that's where I think maybe the background of the strike might be a kind of interesting mm. prism for kind of reading the way it represents the editors in publishing because – they sort of say somewhat the right thing, but they never do the right thing. Like mm. none of their actions ever back it up. And when pressed or confronted, they're immediately defensive mm. and they're immediately, you know, they sat Candace without question. Mm. And they, I think it kind of things that they're major figures in huge companies. So their interest is protecting their company and not to the extent that they engage with, issues around diversity they do so because they think it makes good business sense true partly it's about protecting their brand and partly it's about knowing that there is a market for some form of quote like ethnic writing Mm. if you write in a particular kind of way and write about ethnicity from a particular kind of prism there's a market for it which is what athena is kind of imprisoned by in Mm. a way that she's done really well in that category and she can't seem to break out of that category and it also makes her really scathing of some of the writers coming behind her so Mm. she herself is scathing about other asian writers she's there's this repeated line in it it was like oh do people think your lunch smelled funny or boohoo like she (laughs) has no i think because so many other younger writers reach out to her for mentoring and advice and are expecting some sort of solidarity or support for her and she's like no (laughs) she doesn't want to do that and you can see how it really yeah it really breeds dysfunction though because yeah she does feel like because you know she has the asian author space she's got to protect that space if other Mm. people can't get in so she does have to kind of beat you know the other writers down and to the point where at at the end i guess we we can talk about the fact that candace comes back to sort of avenge what everyone's been suspecting that June has stolen Athena's work and she says at the end screw Athena I hated that bitch too like yeah <laughs> you know it's not good for anybody yeah uh, yeah and I think that's the way the novel does a really good job of talking to the way structures shape people's relationships with one another mm-hmm. so partly Athena's like hostility to other writers is protecting her own space but mm-hmm. also it's like her frustration with the limited amount of space those structures have afforded her. Yes. So it kind of just creates this really dysfunctional space for people. And there's a really good essay, ah, what's it called? I think it's called On Jealousy or On Envy or something like that. It was written by Stephanie Convery and it was in Overland a couple of years ago. And we'll get Jazz to put the link in. But it kind of talks a lot about the way kind of capitalism, in a sense, shapes the way writers relate to each other when Mm -hmm. there's a very small pot of money and everyone is kind of competing for it and there's a very small amount of prestige and no one ever really makes a living from it the way that can shape that kind of envy and jealousy can shape literary communities and the way how hard and consciously you kind of have to struggle to see writing as something that's not just this for-profit enterprise Mm. that kind of writing is like a way of understanding the world or explaining the world or feeling like yourself in the world for people and that 
collaborating with other people in a way that's not necessarily about making money like for example having a small journal or doing you know editing work for people and creating a literary community that's based on like supporting one another can actually be really hard to do Mm. because you feel because those ideas of like failure and someone's in the in group and someone's in Mm. the out group and someone's made it and someone hasn't and your identity can feel so kind of built up around those sorts of things yeah and um, I guess it's a really in, good one in the context of what you were talking about before of that the the marketing people decide that these five books are the are, are the books yeah. and I mean not to say that the books that are chosen don't have value of course that they do but there is a degree of randomness I think mm. to it as well that must be really frustrating for other people like June in this, ex- you know, example where they're not getting the big marketing budget pushed towards them. Mm. And in a weird way of like the meta thing that you were talking about, like Yellowface is almost an example of that phenomenon too. Like this book of like the publishers deciding that this was going yeah. to be a bestseller. <laughs> That's like, right. It's incredibly, not only I guess is it very like of its time in a way that I do sort of wonder what reading this will be like in five years time, like how dated it might mm, feel. Yeah. Because one thing we haven't mentioned yet is it's really plugged in to social media. So yeah. after the book comes out and she's started doing the tour, essentially there's a huge social media bombardment. Some anonymous account starts off saying that June stole the story from Athena. And Athena has always oh so June has always acknowledged in like her public persona that, you know, Athena was one of her quote best friends. They were, I don't know, on the verge of being like sisters or something <laughs> like that. They mentored one another. They're incredibly close. She was the last person to be with her alive. Like she's really leaned into it. So for her, that's partly a way of kind of positioning herself publicly. So if people do note similarities or something like that, she can say, well, of course, mm-hmm. like we were incredibly close friends. I got the idea from Athena. You know, we were we were mates. So similarities that you might see come organically out of our relationship with one another so she's you know pretty blatantly cynical about it but this causes a massive pylon like a massive online pylon which not being part of the online world very much I (laughs) did I was kind of of the thing of like just put your phone down leave the house but like I think the book does a really good thing of saying that like this actually has real world consequences and it does sort of matter it matters for you know whether or not someone will get published again or it it kind of matters for their mental health but it also matters because the spaces to kind of critique publishing can feel so narrow Mm. that a lot of those frustrations and angers get funneled into social media yeah yeah this is a lot about cancel culture yeah i would say as well and it taps into this other feeling i think of and i feel strangely about this because i'm kind of in two camps but the fear of white people and white women in particular of being unintentionally or oblivious and racist. Mm -hmm. I think June is aware of her potential for that. She's got this name Juniper Song and she accepts this invitation to come and speak to the Asian American writers and they they think that she's an Asian woman and the the person who's organizing it comes to pick her up and says, hey, oh, so do you speak Chinese? Do you speak Mandarin? And she was like, no. And she's like, oh, did your parents not speak in front of you? And she's like, oh, no, actually, I, I'm, <laughs> I, there's been a misunderstanding. And then she goes to the 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 writing conference and she they they have lunch afterwards and she's really uncomfortable with the food and all of that and she's just yeah she's just clueless and 
I don't know. It's funny how you say that, that sometimes she was sympathetic because she's done this completely horrible thing. Mm. But I was sympathetic to, uh, to her, like you said, about her dad and all of the other things. And there were instances where I was like, oh, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt and be like, oh, she just hasn't had experiences with this food before. So the fact that she's being like, oh, it's weird and it smells weird and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, she just doesn't handle it very well. No. And I think in that scene it's interesting because she actually sits down with a man who was an indentured labourer and he's a very elderly man and she, you know, he talks about how pleased he is that the story has kind of finally been told within his lifetime Mm. and that he's really grateful to her. And it's the only time in the book I think she experiences anything like a kind of shame, like she wants to leave there as quickly as possible. She just gets out of there. The woman who's organised it sort of knows that that's what's going on, that, that she's sort of embarrassed and... I sort of thought that was the first time or possibly the only time in the book where she was fully able to kind of acknowledge or just feel in her gut that the story she was telling had to do with the experiences of other actual human Mm. beings, that this manuscript wasn't just like a ticket to literary stardom, Mm. that it was that, but it's also about real lived human experiences and Mm. that there is a living kind of memory of those experiences and you know the kindness this kind of man showed her of like being so grateful to her just made her feel embarrassed for what she'd done Mm. that she had done this really mercenary thing to try and get what she wanted with no real engagement in any meaningful way Mm. with people outside of her own experience because I think like, I don't think she actually really engages with racism or cares much about being racist because I think her deep down, her inner narrative, she's so sort of bitter that she thinks to get published these days, there aren't, publishers are only interested in people from diverse background. They're only interested in marginalised voices. They've overcorrected. Like, she was starting to sound a bit like James Patterson. Remember yes. when James was? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, if you're just plain old brown-haired June from Philly, no one cares. So she feels kind of like, you know, in a weird way, she sort of feels like she's correcting the table, like she's turning the table. What do you think the issue is with June? What It's funny how, because I think I was about halfway through reading this novel when and you were saying to me, oh, she's just terrible. And I was like, yeah, she's <laughs> not great, but I don't know if she's terrible. And then I hit the the part where she's teaching that class she's decided oh I'm going to give back to my writing community and I'm going to teach these young people and that the first day goes really well and she feels like oh you know she can really pass her knowledge along to these emerging authors and really help to help them grow and all this stuff and then the second day she walks in and she finds them they don't realize she's late and they don't realize she's standing there and they're all like crowded around somebody's lap and they're reading the blog that I think it was Spark Sato or one of the one of her detractors mm. was kind of like tearing her apart and pointing out the fact that she didn't actually write this book. And she just gets so defensive and enraged and really embarrassed, but she can't she can't own that. So instead she pretends that she doesn't see them what they've been reading and marches into the front of the class and that proceeds to just eviscerate all of these young people and their work in order to just feel better about herself like just to write the balance of power 
And oh, that I was, was just like, no, Andrew's right. This is a horrible, <laughs> horrible person to just be like stamping on the dreams of all these young people just because she can't handle the fact that they were, they were seeing her for who she was. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, she's just someone who feels very defeated. She's really lonely. She doesn't seem to have any real kind of friendships. She has a very fraught relationship with her family, mm. a very distant one, mm. where she feels they've been really unsupportive of, mm. of her. It seems like she has some uh, kind of grief, residual grief left over mm. from the death of her father and the way that shaped her family. She has some really bad experiences at uni, including like her sexual assault. And then she sort of graduates into the world and she's doing a bunch of like really badly paid jobs that are all kind of casualised and she's just trying to stitch together some kind of a living and she thinks you know she finally gets her book out there and no one cares like it's kind Mm. of it just sinks on the one hand there's this thing about how lonely that experience might be and the idea if writing is like an act of communication how important it might be to think that someone's actually listening to you or Mm. hearing you or seeing what you're doing or engaging with your work like how you know kind of upsetting to think that you've poured a huge part of yourself into this thing and someone somewhere has at least deemed it kind of good enough to go out into the world and then no one wants no one kind of sees you I think mm. so I think she does a good job at kind of showing that in a way that's sympathetic but it's what she does next that becomes a problem to mm. kind of there's no like engagement with like you know the structures of how publishing work it's just this kind of like, I'm going to get that money mentality <laughs> that kicks in. It becomes this kind of like every person for themselves, mm. um, this really individualized experience. And I think it also shows how publishing, you know, by picking like unique literary superstars, kind of pits authors against one another. And mm. it does feel dog eat dog. It does feel like it's you against everyone else. Mm-hmm. There's like one market and you all want the same things from it, but only a handful of people can get it and you want it. Mm. So I think it shows that that kind of individualism the way it erodes potential bonds between other writers or it kind of makes it difficult to maybe have a kind of community like she talks about going to kind of book conventions and stuff when she was a lowly writer just first published and no author wanted to talk to her because she wasn't considered you know of important enough or of mm. high enough status and then as soon as she's published by this particular author everyone's like let's be mates mm. let's go and have a drink let's hang out and all of a sudden she's inside this kind of world but this world is really pragmatic as soon as the twitter thing kicks off all of these other writers just ghost her like they yeah. have no interest in being associated with her because it's bad for her so there's no genuine friendships or solidarity or anything even between athena and uh, and june there's nothing really but kind of competition and envy that was um, the other thing that yeah. kept evolving as well as the manuscript the nature or the, how solid their friendship was seemed to be like like at first it was like not at all and then towards the end it was like when she was looking back on those times before either of them were published and how they used to work together together on their yeah. uh, manuscripts and it seemed like no there, there was an actual friendship there so that it was always shifting and evolving yeah and I thought that was interesting as well those flashbacks to before any one of them were kind of published and they would like stay up all night and they'd write together and everyone would pass around their work and they'd share it. and there was a kind of genuine community mm. of people there but that's something the closer they get to the market mm the more that fragments. Because of all the things because you were just saying. Because of the pressures of that yeah. make it really difficult for them to have genuine relationships because they, they feel like they're in competition with each other and to some extent they yeah. are. So there's a, a storyline throughout the book where June keeps seeing 
Athena after her death. She's certain that she sees her. And at first, the first time it happens, I think you just could kind of dismiss it as, oh, her eyes are playing tricks on her or whatever. But it continues to happen. There's an actual person out there that she keeps seeing as Athena. And towards the end of the book, she writes, but I'm losing track of the narrative. My thoughts spiral out beyond what the pages can contain. This has gone from a dark literary coming of age story to a jumbled frantic ghost story. My carefully constructed outline falls apart against the story Athena wants to see. I abandon my original plot. I furiously transcribe everything that comes to mind, which oscillates between my truth and the truth. And I was like, is she writing about exactly where she is at this point in the novel? Like, yeah. it's like June is speaking and Rebecca is speaking at the same time because it's the same thing that's happened. Yeah, that's true. I would say I sort of, I really enjoyed the first, say, two thirds of this book. So the, when it's dealing with the theft, the build up to publication, the publication, the book tour and the social media it kind of fallout. I really enjoyed that. I think it felt really sharp and it sort of, there's like a sense of urgency to it. Like I think the author, this just, it kind of feels like she'd just been in this world for so long. She just reached her limit and she was like, right. And it's really sharp and really well written. I did find the sort of end of the novel where there is a bit more about this kind of almost like a haunting mm. ghost story, the the re-kind of emergence of Candace. That to me felt a little bit unfocused and a little bit like after this incredible kind of opening where she'd said everything she wanted to say, just a little bit unsure about how to end it, Right, I think. I found the pacing at that point I really enjoyed. I was like really okay. turning the pages. I feel like at the end, and I right after I finished, as I always do, I go into Goodreads and because I immediately smashed five stars and looked, <laughs> and I was like, oh, the first like three or four ratings are like two, oh, three, really? yeah. Ah. And lots of people did not like the ending; they felt it petered out. Okay. And yeah. I can understand that it did sort of peter out to some degree, but I, f I, I was okay with that. I don't think that this was the kind of book that you can kind of say, and then they all lived happily ever after. Totally. Or, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So the fact that it sort of petered out and it was like, mm, what's going to happen after this sat fine with me. Yeah, I like that there isn't a resolution to mm. it because, I mean, this isn't like a, this is a structural thing that's not easily resolvable. So mm. it's the kind of idea that like another kind of emerging rivalry develops between Two, two riders and, mm. and they're off to the races and they're really motivated by it. Yeah, I thought that was really – I thought that was good. I think maybe it's just the execution of mm. it, like in principle having it end on this kind of unresolved note was good. It just sort of felt a bit like maybe a little bit wobblier than what had come before, which mm. felt so taut. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'd read like overwhelmingly really, really positive reviews of this and interesting ones from kind of writers from diverse kind of backgrounds, so many of them saying that they've had – you know, people in publishing use almost these exact phrases with right. them. They've had like an uncanny kind of experience reading this that it so closely affirms their own experiences of what the publishing world has been like yeah. and what kind of some of the oblivious white women who exist in that world have been mm. have been like and what the attitudes towards diversity and stuff have been. Mm. So, yeah, I totally take my head off. Like I, I think she's really nailed that, that publishing world. I thought she did too. I thought So if any of those things interest you, writing, publishing, cancel culture, who gets to tell whose story, any yeah. of those things, this is a 
book that really makes you think deeply about all of those things, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So recommend from you as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one. Cool. cool. Yellow face is done. <laughs> so now we might have a bit of a chat about a couple of things that we've been reading or would like to read. I started reading Wifedom by Anna Funder. So this is sort of a biography of Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who was George Orwell's wife. But more probably accurately, I think it's about the way the unacknowledged work of women gives creative men the space Mm. to do what they need to do and the way people like their biographers have been complicit in writing the contributions of women out of these people's lives to create the idea of like male genius. I feel Um, like there's been a few of these works lately. Yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head but it's (laughs) not it's not a new concept reason which I'm fully in favour of. Yeah (laughs) so this is like there's parts of this book where she makes the points really beautifully and she talks about you know, how biographers use a passive tense to create, like, you know, it was a period of, you know, uh, George Orwell was smashing them out this summer and then it's like, but why? Mm. Why did he have so much time to do this? And it's like, then it looks at what Eileen was doing in their actual life that created the space for him to be incredibly prolific. So bits like that are really interesting. I think sometimes uh, there are a few things I feel a little bit uncomfortable about it in. There's sort of speculation about... George Orwell's sexuality, kind of based on a few comments Eileen made about being, you know, perhaps not very sexually fulfilled. Part of me sort of feels like, I don't know, a little bit uncomfortable about that. I think there are so many like genuine things you can say about the idea isn't that George Orwell was such a horrible person. It's the idea that he was a man of his time, that these were normalised attitudes Mm. at his time. This was a kind of maybe an extreme end of an acceptable way to kind of treat your wife. So some of the speculation about like his sexuality or the kind of authorial interventions about him having a bit of a sadistic streak, I just kind of wonder about how necessary they are when what's Mm. already there and there's evidence for is quite rich. Mm. So that's that one. Interesting. The other one I read, which I kind of hope somebody else reads because I'd like to have a chat about it, it's called The Anniversary. It's by Australian writer Stephanie Bishop. It's about, it's actually pretty similar to what we've been talking about. You're right, there is a theme. Publishing likes themes. Yeah, it's about a husband and wife, kind of middle-aged, head off on a cruise for their 14th or 15th wedding anniversary. The husband dies on the cruise. That's not at all a spoiler. It's on the blurb. And it's sort of about how the woman deals with grief. But it's also about, she kind of realises that she's become a suspect, that there's an investigation going into his death. Is this fiction? It's Mm. fiction, yeah. So it's literary fiction. I think the publishers maybe did it a bit of a disservice by kind of presenting it as kind of like a, you know, a a crime thriller or whodunit. It's a really literary book, which is kind of about marriage and relationships and the resentments that build up over the course of a marriage. It's about kind of gender. So she met her husband when she was a young student and she thought he was this incredibly dynamic university professor. She's also a writer on the cusp of a major kind of career high she's about to win this incredibly prestigious award so it's really like an investigation of their marriage and sounds really familiar actually is it who wrote there were stephanie bishop there were lots of proofs in the kitchen for a long time that i think i'm the only one who grabbed one (laughs) but i would i'd be really there are things about this novel that work so well and that i really enjoyed 
like the unreliable narrator can be such an obvious trope, but I think it makes her unreliable in a way that's initially quite hard to spot. Mm. Um, and when you do spot it, you know that she's lying straight away about something mm. and you don't quite know why. Mm. And then there's these subtle ways that she's unreliable that become easier to pick once you get a little bit further along. So I'm kind of interested in someone reading it because I want to have a chat about what works and what doesn't. I think it'd be a good one for book clubs as well. But if anyone has read it and would like a chat, I'm based at Hellet Co. <laughs> you can come on down because no one I know has read it. We do like a book with an unreliable narrator, don't we? Yeah. Because this book, of course, is it has an unreliable narrator. It's called an oblivious narrator. Yeah. <laughs> and Vladimir, which we both oh, read. Oh, yeah, of I like that too. Unreliable narrator. And I noticed yeah. that that this book also mentions Nabokov oh, at yeah. one point. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, call back to the unreliable, the classic unreliable yeah. narrators. They're the two really good things I've read recently. Uh, actually, there was a one third really good thing I read, which is Cold Enough for Snow by Jessica Ow. I don't know if you've read this one. Mm-hmm. came out a little while ago. It won the inaugural novel prize. It's about a mother and a daughter having a short trip to Japan together. And it's written in... Just incredible prose. I loved the prose feels so kind of formal. She feels like he's not trying to be your friend. It has almost no sense of humour. It's so it's so rich and elusive and it really, really rewards it really trusts that you'll read it properly. So it doesn't spell anything out. And it mm-hmm. lets you notice patterns and loops and shifting emphasis and stuff. And it trusts that you'll just read it and she's not gonna spell anything out for wow. you and it was so good it's really short and it's just excellent and it felt like it just sort of felt like it avoided lots of familiar writing tropes at the moment it's something that felt slightly old-fashioned about it in a really good way okay i loved it it's incredibly sad it sort of to me it sort of felt like about the total inability to really connect with someone even when you really want to and even when in some ways you are partly who you are because of them, like just the kind of inability of really understanding one another. Hmm. It's really good. Great. What's that? <laughs> Anything from you or? No, I've got nothing. <laughs> Paula has a very important job so she can't like lay about like me. <laughs> I, I've started to re- read Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Um, okay. Who wrote The Martian? Yeah, um, and it's really good. And I just haven't. I'm listening to it on Borrowbox, and it's it's really great. But I just haven't finished, so I haven't read enough to say too much more than that. That sounds good. <laughs> Four new releases. There was only one I wanted to plug, sure. mainly because I've read an excerpt from it, and it was really funny. It's called I'd Rather Not. It's by Robert Skinner. It's published by Black Ink. Have you heard about this too? Yes. How long ago was it published? Just came out. Oh, okay. Maybe at the start of the month, actually. Okay. Start of July. Yeah. Maybe maybe I heard about it from you. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. I've been banging on about it. <laughs> yeah, it, as Robert Skinner is, it's his memoir of essentially being kind of down and out in Melbourne. He published a very obscure literary journal. He had a you know a bunch of kind of random jobs and lived all over the place. So it's his memoir of deciding he didn't want to work. He wanted to try and devote That's himself right. to writing mm. and just how incredibly difficult that is. So, yeah, it's really funny. There's a few excerpts online. Just I'd encourage everyone to have a read. It's really good and it's very unlike anything else I've mentioned today. So cool. There you go. Something different. Well, I think we have an announcement to make for the podcast. Oh, yes. Well, this will be my last podcast with the gang at Marion Library Service because I am moving back to Melbourne with my family. So... 
This also means I'm unemployed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone... So feel free to reach out if you would like to give me a job. <laughs> but yes, I've really, really enjoyed doing the podcast, especially with Paula, who was my mentor for the podcast. You had me on for the first one and has helped me through it and coached me through it all the way. So, And I will really, really miss working for the City of Marion. It's been an amazing time working on their programs here. Everyone's been super generous and the community have been just so much fun to kind of work with. So I'm really grateful to all of our regulars who come along and the new people who've popped in, all the authors we've had. It's been lots of fun. Jazz can edit this so I sound more articulate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously this is a huge loss for Marion Libraries. We're really sad to see Andrea go... I've just really appreciated everything that Andrea's brought to her role, not just to the podcast, but to the program's delivery. I've learned a lot from Andrea over her time here, and I've just really loved all her enthusiasm and ideas and everything she she brings to the service. So thank you so much, Andrea, for everything that you've done, and good luck in thank Melbourne. Thank you so much. And I hope you continue <laughs> listening to the podcast. I shall, I shall. I feel like some of that was code for she goes on a bit. But <laughs> Absolutely. Not. Oh my gosh, yeah, I feel like I've had to, this is the second time I've had to make an announcement like this in the podcast and I do not like it. <laughs> so what but, is the future of the podcast? So for Paula? the future of the podcast, what? we for now we're going to continue to intersperse our book club type episodes with our author recordings. So next month you will get our recording of Pip Williams, obviously super Excellent. popular if you missed coming along to that one. That was a fantastic talk mm. that she had with Allie Clark from Mix 102.3. So I encourage you to tune into that one and then we'll go continue to go back and forth. So we'll let you know when we release that podcast what our book is for the next month. Excellent. And then after that, I think we will have a combination of myself, of Jasmine, and our new team leader, Salma, Yay. Um, running the, the episodes about the awesome. books. So that should be fun. We're looking forward to that. So stick with us, including you, Andrea. I shall. I shall. It's a very good crew of people. So I will definitely be listening in. I'm probably writing your emails going, you're wrong. (laughs) That'll be great. And we will read them on the podcast. (laughs) Well, I could have a lot of time on my hands. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, let me know. (laughs) If you are out in library land, I I do encourage you to look Andrea up because she is fantastic at what she does. Please do. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> and I mess it up. Maybe I'll give it a go to see if I can get it right on my last one. And if I mess it up, you chuck, you jump in and okay. fix it. No worries. The City of Marion recognises that the Literary Anything podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kaurna people. And we recognise the Kaurna people as the traditional custodians of the land. <laughs>